Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Open Concessions podcast, featuring a weekly in-depth conversation with a Chicago Cubs-related personality. We are your hosts. Alongside Jim Deshays, I'm Len Casper. You know us as the Cubs television tandem. J.D., how was your holiday weekend? Uh, it was great, Len. Uh, summer finally arrived. It's like somebody flipped a switch on, um, but managed to uh, spend a little time in a park with uh, my daughters and wife and future son-in-law. Played a little catch for the first time in years, uh, so that was kind of fun. And uh, otherwise, just kind of kicked back. How about you? Did you throw any breaking pitches, or were you just fastball change-up heavy? Uh, yeah, pretty pretty straight stuff. You know, I didn't want to peak too early. Um, didn't want to, you know, make my future son-in-law run to retrieve my errant tosses. So, but it's funny the, the day before we were at the same park and there was a couple guys playing catch, uh, and with a baseball and gloves, and they had about a fifty percent completion rate. And I thought that's not very good. But <laughs> anyway, uh, we had a great weekend. Thanks. Yeah, it's good to to get outside here and there when uh, it's appropriate. And uh, summer has arrived, and let's hope baseball is back soon. More on that later. Today's guest is Joel Murray, a terrific film actor and TV personality. Uh, Joel is a huge Cubs fan. He sings the stretch every year. Uh, comes from a very large and talented uh, Murray family from Wilmette, Illinois. Uh, he has been on Mad Men, Shameless, Dharma, and Greg. Uh, he's a Second City alum. We'll talk to him about that. And has been a member of the touring improv group Who's live anyway since 2014? We've gotten to know Joel pretty well over the years. A real good down-to-earth guy. Yeah, I really look forward to, to chatting with Joel and uh, you know digging in a little bit on his family and his personal history. All right, here you go. Enjoy our conversation with Joel Murray. Uh, Joel, uh, how are you, first of all, health-wise, and uh, what are you doing to keep busy with no baseball to watch right now? Well, um, I've uh, been living here in Los Angeles, California for a, quite a while, and uh, they finally opened the golf courses back up, so I'm actually really sore right now because I, uh, I've taken it hard. I've, I've walked probably 54 holes in the last five days, uh, but I, I walk and I carry a bag, and uh, so that's, uh, that's kind of good. Kind of good on the, the legs, at least. Yeah, it's good to definitely get outside. Uh, we talked to Bob Odenkirk a couple of weeks ago, and uh, his son uh, had just recovered from COVID-19, thankfully. Um, it's, it's a little fun. different in California, right? I mean, they, they've been very strict about things. Well, people have been isolated for a long time. I, we, uh, you know, I travel around the country. I do a live Whose Line Is It Anyway show, and... Uh, we had just done shows in Seattle and, uh, you know, we, we were kind of in the epicenter there. And then we came back and we were going to do a run of four shows in California. And we were going down to Escondido and we uh, got the word that our governor had shut down any live performances. So uh, we've been off since I think that was March 12th, 13th or something like that. So uh, yeah, how old is Bob's kid? Uh, he is... JD, he's at DePaul, uh, right? Yeah, college, 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 college student at DePaul. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But thankfully, he's he's doing much better, and I guess uh, headed back to Chicago. So that's uh, that's good. Have you done any zooming or anything with your uh, whose line is it anyway? Troop? We haven't done anything uh, yet. Uh, we've done some kind of game show things with John Mangum, who's uh, 
Wayne Brady's sidekick on Let's Make a Deal. Uh, he has a kind of a game show. And uh, some of the Who's Line, uh, Ryan and Colin and those guys have done it. Uh, but our little offshoot, the Who's Live, has not done it yet. Um, and it's kind of hard to improvise off each other uh, in, you know, in a Zoom form. Yeah, that was, that's what I was going to ask you. Is it even doable to do some kind of improv uh, on Zoom? And, and and maybe the follow-up would be, did you see uh, SNL when they were doing their uh, live broadcast? And, and, and uh, I'm curious to know what your, your take uh, uh, of how they performed and, and how that looked. I saw some of that SNL thing, and, and they did a good job, but that wasn't all live. Some of that was done already and just pieced in at that moment. Um, but, yeah, to, to actually give in or take, it would be like, you know, Len's a musician. I don't know about you, baby, but, uh, you know, if you, if you were playing somebody and there might be a, a second and a half gap, uh, it's it's pretty awkward. Uh, so you have to overcome that and have, like, a perfect setup. But, um we haven't figured out how to do that yet. Hey, for the record, uh, I was told that uh, you got all dialed up for this and uh, you're looking really good. So there is no video, uh, but we want everyone to know that your hair is combed and, and you're yeah. looking very suave. I I was so disappointed. I put a mirror up here just so I could look at myself like I was looking at myself in the monitor. Uh, you know, I the one thing about this... Uh, that I've got going on still is the, the William Murray golfware that I work with. And, uh, that's, that's my sense of my one source of income at this point. So, uh, we've been working real hard on the clothing line and I've got on a, a very striking outfit. Uh, well, let's, uh, let's, if, if people haven't uh, found it, where can they find it online? It's all williammurraygolf.com. Okay. Uh, and it's got, you know, a little legend and lore of the brothers and our, our love of golf. And, uh, the clothing line, we were starting it, you know, three years ago, and uh, we were going to do it ourselves, but we got in cahoots with the, the guys at the Chive, and they uh, kind of gave us a, some seed money and uh, a wide uh, viewing audience because they have, you know, like two, three million people hitting on their website a day. So uh, they kind of got us up and running, and now we're on our own. We've taken the training wheels off, and it's, it's just us, and uh, it's going really well. Even with this virus, uh, we're only down about 20% uh, because it's an all online company anyway. Yeah, I just pulled it up. I'm uh, checking out uh, some of your stuff. It's really good looking. Yeah, it's real quality stuff too. Am I talking about my stuff much? But yeah, uh, it's, uh, I've got it on. I, I, I have everything. So I, you know, I sleep in it. I, I swim in it. I, I do everything in it. But, uh, I, 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 uh, I'm particularly fond of the reversible Carl bucket hat in tartan. Well, that would be good for you. Yeah. 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 That would be, it's sold out though. So I was going to say that one sells out pretty quick. Every yeah. time we make more. Are you guys going to make masks? Uh, we haven't made masks because our materials in Vietnam. So uh, it's, <laughs> it would have been real handy if it was in a warehouse and we could, you know, just make our own masks here, but to, uh, hire the people in Vietnam to make the masks and then send them back uh, would not be timely because we, we, we order about six months out. So I guess when this first started, we were hoping it would be over in six months, you know, completely. But who knows? We, we know uh, how big a Cubs fan you are. And uh, I don't know if I've ever asked you if you ever had a choice but to become a Cubs fan. 
<laughs> considering where you grew up in Wilmette and with your big family? Well, we were, you know, we were brainwashed by WGN at an early age, of course. And uh, my my first game, you know, when we were uh, choir boys at St. Joe's up in Wilmette, Illinois, uh, you know, that was your first game you went to when you were in second or third grade or something like that. Uh, they took you up uh, and gave you the worst possible seats. You know, it's like section 399. You, like where my son worked on the Wrigley View rooftop was only about 25 feet away from the seats we used to sit in in the choir so uh as far back in the the left field corner grandstand upper deck that you could get that's where we used to sit and it was still just the greatest experience ever um and then i you know i also started i guess before the choir uh i went out in 69 so i was only seven at that point um my mother my father died when I was five and, uh, in 69, my sister was in charge of babysitting for me that whole summer. So, uh, anytime we had $5 and a game was in town, we'd go buy two bleacher seats and take the L back and forth. And if we could scrape together a couple extra quarters, we'd get around Santo pizza. But yeah, that was an amazing run. Who is your guy? Who is, who is your, uh, favorite cub? I was a huge Ron Sano fan, but I I uh, also had Glenn Beckert's uh, signature on my glove, and uh, I, I like Glenn Beckert a lot. We we lost him this year. Yeah, as in you you bought a glove with like a, a Glenn Beckert model, or you had him autograph. You got his autograph. It was an autograph on a uh, Bobby Knoop uh, glove. Oh, nice. Uh, but yeah, no, it used to be my sister and I would literally go out to O'Hare. And we would meet the plane. And back in then, you know, you didn't have to have a ticket or anything and there's no security. You could go and you could meet them coming off the plane. So we both had uh, baseballs with signatures all over them, the whole 69 Cubs. She still got hers. I I ended up like, you know, Sandlot using mine to play uh, Vince Anzucchi down the street one day. Uh, we needed another ball, so I went and got the autograph one. Uh, for, so for people who don't know, and you know, a lot of people know you come from a really big family. You're one of nine siblings. Uh, so give us, uh, you know, where you rank in terms of age. Uh, you're the youngest. Yeah, nine of nine. And so, the, what is the range in terms of your oldest sibling is how many years older than you? Uh, my brother Ed is 18 years older than me. Okay. And he and Brian are kind of Irish twins, so Brian's 17. Uh, so yeah, they were uh, the class of '63 at Loyola, and I was uh, the class of '80 at Loyola Academy in Wilmette. So, what was your relationship with those guys growing up? Considering as you were <laughs> learning how to talk, uh, they were already out of high school. Well, I, I used to joke that uh, yeah, I I didn't get out of the crib till I was 12 because there wasn't room for me anywhere in the house. Well, there were so many kids and so few bedrooms, but. Um, my dad died when I was young, I just said five. So all of a sudden I had five older brothers that all felt like they could backhand me or hit me in the head, tell me what to do at any time. So uh, they, they were mainly, you know, parental figures in that way. Uh, but, you know, Ed was uh, in the Air Force when I was quite young. Uh, so he was kind of the straight and narrow and, and Brian, you know, ran off to California and, he was involved with the second city with, you know, 
Belushi and Joe Flaherty and all these people. So he was kind of a wild man. And, uh, you know, Billy at, around that time was in his like long-haired Fu Manchu period and was a, a bit of an enigma, a funny enigma. But uh, it was it was weird. And then my other two brothers were kind of closer in age, and we, we shared a room and shared just about everything. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it was a it was a great way to grow up. You got to learn a lot, uh, often by bad example. Uh, but, uh, yeah, here's what not to do, right? Yeah, right. Well, that doesn't go over well with mom. That's for sure. Well, yeah, it's funny. I've I've had different relationships with all my brothers through the years, depending on you know geography as well. You know, it, when I was the first one to move out to California at one point, and you know I hung out with my brother Ed a lot, who was up in Santa Maria, and uh, and whatever Brian moved out here and my brother Andy moved out here at one point there were four brothers in Manhattan you know it, it's it's uh, been interesting you, you mentioned your father and if this is too personal you don't have to answer it of course um, but what memories do you have of your dad since uh, you were so young when he passed away well he was a he was a skinny guy he was a diabetic uh, a thin diabetic and uh, I uh, I don't have a lot of vivid memories. I remember, you know, a couple of family vacations we went on. And uh, I remember one time he was trying to do something with the dryer to fix the dryer and bumping, bumping his head accidentally on the dryer door. I remember a look he gave me. That one's always stuck with me. Um, I, you know, I remember he used to have diabetic seizures. And uh, I remember a couple of those. And, uh, you know, I remember his funeral and my grandfather getting on his knees, getting out of a wheelchair to get on his knees and pray at his at his son's coffin. And uh, that's something you don't forget. But uh, unfortunately, not so many. I was I was a mama's boy. So where, where does the um, where does the entertainment gene come from? So, you know, half of that brood is, is in the entertainment business. Is it your mom, your dad, the uh, happenstance uh, an aunt or uncle i mean where, where, where did this desire to get into show business come from how did you all become actors well lack of direction i guess we just thought out direction uh well my dad again back to the diabetic thing was a really slow eater and um you know the family as you can imagine the food got passed around and you know you didn't really eat till you had longer arms but um we uh live to entertain my father because we'd eat in 45 seconds and he would eat in 45 minutes. So the most of the meal was trying to get, you know, him to laugh with food in his mouth. And, uh, my mother was very funny in an Edith Bunker sort of way. And my dad was kind of more of a, a Bob Newhart sort of way. And, uh, you kind of developed your own sense of, uh, comedy or your, your own needed instrument at the table. And you, you learned a lot about timing, I guess. Uh, but it was all about making dad laugh pretty much. I think that's, that's where a lot of it, you know, started. And we literally would have people come over, you know, my brother's friends would come and pick them up to go out for the evening, but they'd come early and just pull a chair up and watch our table, uh, you know, be they only children or something like that. But they just found it like a, a zoo, a freak show where you could watch it. But it sold tickets. Yeah. So were there, were there times when, I mean, because your brothers were so much older, but were there times where everybody was still in the house together or had they, you know, I guess there would have been, right? There had to be a short period of time at least. Yeah. Uh, right. 
I mean, like I said, my father died when I was five. And until then, we were all in the house. Uh, there were 11 of us in a basically a three-bedroom house. Where the basement was, you know, sleeping area as well. So four bedrooms. But uh, it was pretty tight. And, uh, you know, I, we joke about it. But, you know, my dad died and everybody realized, well, we got to make some money. My brother Ed joined the Air Force during Vietnam. My sister Nancy joined the convent and went away and became a nun. But it was like that desperate to get out of that house at that point. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know what? Rather than be here, I'm going to go with a life of celibacy and, and go. I'll go to Vietnam. I'll go to I'll go to the convent. Yeah. And Brian, Brian went to California. I uh, I've got I think 27 first cousins on my dad's side uh, because he has five siblings. <clears throat> so I can relate a little bit when we would get together at the summer cottage uh, and we had a group of, man, probably 12 to 15 kids who were all within three or four years. And it almost it invariably became a talent show. Um, so it's almost kind of competition, right, to get the adults attention. So I would imagine that in terms of the comedy stuff, just having that large group around each other, there was a little one-upsmanship. That probably didn't hurt, right? Oh, yeah. There's always been, you know, a, a competitive uh, thing going on, be it at the table or, or, you know, in athletics as well. But, you know, we get together with our cousins like that. And, you know, sure enough, there'd be wiffle ball games breaking out or, you know, touch football that turns into tackle and got way too competitive, you know, uh, aggressive swimming, you know. <laughs> Oh, come on, let's swim to the raft. Oh, why did I have to die? But, uh, yeah, it it always got aggressive and interesting with, you know, that many siblings. Well, we don't talk politics or religion uh, on our broadcast, and we don't want to dive too deep into either here. But I will ask about your Irish Catholic upbringing. And uh, you mentioned uh, Loyola. And, you know, what impact uh, did that have on you and maybe still to this day? Well, um <clears throat> You know, I, I said one night, one day when I was in the booth with you guys, I said, you know, being a Cub fan is, is kind of like your religion. You're, you're kind of born into it. You, you didn't really choose it. Uh, it just kind of was given to you and you, your forefathers did it. And uh, yeah, But it was the same way with, you know, Catholicism. We were born into it. My dad was an usher at the church. He was the head usher, the head of the Holy Name Society. My mom was in the choir. My sister's in the choir. My sister Nancy was a nun, taught across town at Regina Dominican, the girls' school. She would know on Friday morning everything I did on the weekend before, because the girls would come and tell her. So that was that was rough. Um, but you know, I, I've met, I've kissed the ring of two popes. I went to school in Rome, Italy, uh, my junior year of college. I sang for a pope in the seventh grade uh, with the Puri Cantores. So I've um, I've been a you know a Catholic fan. Uh, <laughs> I've attended all the games I could, but, uh, you know, it, uh, I'm not, you know, outrageous, you know, I'm not Opus Dei. I'm not, uh, you know, I don't think the, the Pope is too crazy hip. Like some people I know, uh, like, wow, when the Pope's hipper than you are, you may have missed a bus along the way, pal. But, uh, I, you know, I, I liken it to being, you know, a Cub fan. It's like, well, that's what I was born into, and uh, that's the team I'm rooting for. Uh, it's just the way it, way it always was. So in uh, – I know you went to Loyola Academy, but uh, so what is that? What is that high school only? What's, 
I don't know what the uh, that was grade all, range. Sixteen hundred all boy Catholic school all, and, all the way through, all the way up through. Yeah, and I I couldn't wait to get out of there. I I guess I'm glad I got sent there. Uh, I had my three oldest brothers went to Loyola, and then two got to go to New Trier, the the cool public co-ed school. Uh, and then when I came along after their uh, performance, I had to go to Loyola again. <laughs> they uh, ruined it for you. Yeah, they ruined it. Uh, uh, did you have nuns? Did you have brothers? Who were the teachers? We had uh, we had a few priests. Uh, I think I had six or seven as teachers while I was there. But, you know, I, I was senior year. I was captain of the football team, leading the musical. So I made the most of it. But I, I really didn't enjoy the all-boys Catholic school. And uh, on graduation day, when I was lining up to get my diploma, you had to go out into the wings of the theater and my brothers were there and they grabbed me and, and tried to drag me out. And I, I think I got one in the throat, one in the side of the head and one in the stomach. Uh, I just punched my way back on stage because the, there was no way I was not getting that diploma and leaving that day. Uh, and uh, improv has been you know, really important to you and uh, early in your uh, career, uh, you did it here in Chicago and uh, specifically at the uh, second city and, you and I were texting maybe a month ago. Uh, I was watching the uh, A&E documentary on uh, on Chris Farley, and you are uh, pretty heavily featured in that uh, documentary. A lot of uh, really good uh, comments you made about Chris. Uh, tell us about uh, your relationship with him and your experience at the Second City. Well, you know, I, I started going to the Second City when I was literally 11, 12 years old when my brothers were there. Uh, so I, I never dreamed in my wildest dreams that I would ever have the chops or the talent to get on that stage. But, uh, I happened in with the right group of people and Del Close was teaching. Uh, and we, we just kind of came through at the right time. We started the improv Olympic, the IO in Chicago. And, uh, we, uh, ascended the ladder and, you know, I started in the touring company like everybody does. And I toured all over the U S in a van with, you know, nine people or something like that. And it's funny now I, I travel all over the U S and Canada with five people, six people with a tour manager, uh, in a, in a really nice sprinter van now, uh, and it's first class and no longer sharing a room in a, in a motel six, like I was back in the day, but uh, it's weird that I've come full circle back to where I started. But, uh, when I was in the second city, uh, I had an apartment on Well Street uh, above a Mexican restaurant, like two doors down from the Second City. And uh, one day, uh, Joyce Sloan uh, gave Chris Farley the, whatever you call it, the landlord's number. And uh, he got the apartment in the front, and I had the bigger apartment in the back. And uh, he was my uh, yellow uh, my yellow lab for about three years there. He lived in the front, and, uh, you know, I... <laughs> I had the clean apartment in the back. He had the the Farley styled front building, and uh, you know most nights you'd you'd hear him break down the door because he forgot his key, kind of thing. But and I, I I would invite him into my apartment all the time, and I'd make him sit in the same wicker chair because he couldn't stain it. And uh, after a few months, I realized now he's he's staining the carpet. The, the chair is okay, keeping him off the couch, but he's, there's actually a visible stain on the carpet. But, uh, well, we had a great time. Uh, he was a true student of comedy. Uh, comedy, you know. He, I used to say, he was afraid of the dark. But he'd be up 
laughing. I could hear him in the distance laughing, you know, watching, you know, classic uh, comedy movies and stuff like that. And he knew my brother's lines from Stripes and from all these movies. And he'd quiz me on them. Uh, and he knew them better than I did. Uh, but yeah, he he was a, the greatest guy. And he just was like having a big Labrador retriever, a blonde lab. And he, he knew he was doing something wrong and he'd apologize, but he just couldn't help himself kind of thing. And well, I, you know, I think Joyce alone placed him there and I, I looked after him. I made sure he didn't get into too much trouble uh, while I, you know, for those three years. But it's a, a horrible thing. When when he died, we all went up to Madison for the funeral. And, you know, we were crying about the fact that wh- why isn't this this guy's, you know, wedding? Why are we here for a funeral? This is just tragic. 33 years old. Yeah. And and. Everybody in that documentary, and I think including you, said he he was the funniest person everybody knew. And these were all the funniest people I've ever heard say that when they were in a room with Chris, uh, he was the funniest person in the room at all times. He was ridiculous. Uh, he he committed so hard, and you know, to doing characters for no reason. But he uh, he just level of commitment was just off the charts, and. He, he was funny, and uh, sometimes he was way over the line, and he'd apologize, and then he'd be right back at it a few seconds later. But, uh, yeah, he, uh, and, you know, I used to, because I lived next door to him, I would see he'd get like a big green package his mother would send him, and he would have a brand new or freshly laundered khaki pants, tons of white socks, uh, white T-shirts, and white, like, Brooks Brothers shirts. And I would see him at like nine o'clock, 10 o'clock in the morning, put on a brand new pair of khakis and a brand new T-shirt and white shirt. And he always had army boots he wore. And then the next thing you know, it'd be two in the morning and I'd see him down at Burton Place and the pants would have holes in the knees. He would be missing one of his sleeves and he would have like a visible shroud of Chris around his neckline of just scotch and uh, sweat. (laughs) <laughs> like Chris, I saw you put that on today. What? The, oh, I'm hard on clothes. You know, I just am. But uh, he, he was a trip. Just yeah. Well, they say only the good die young, and he uh, definitely got a lot out of those 33 years. But as you said, it was uh, way, way, way too soon. Um, and JD Del Close has now been referenced twice in four podcasts that we've done. Uh, Dell passed away in 1999, but uh, obviously he had a big impact on, uh, on Bob and, and, and Joel. Yeah. Bob, by the way, replaced me when I left the second city, Bob kind of took my spot, uh, which was kind of cool. So, so Dell was kind of the, the guru of improv or more of just like an acting coach. No, he was strictly improv. Uh, I mean, he did a lot of Chicago theater uh, as he got older, but he, you know, he's the guy that taught Belushi and my brothers and uh, went up to Canada and taught Gilda and Aykroyd and, you know, a lot of the people on Saturday Night Live. And um, he was also kind of responsible for the great success of SNL in the beginning in the fact that they used to, they brought him out and there was a weird name he had for himself, but um, they used to improvise on Monday and Tuesday just off of topical things. And uh, Dell would run them through the paces and, and have them do some improvisation with the writers watching. And a lot of the characters and things would come up through those improvisations. So it was an improv kind of 
based show back in that day. Uh, and now it's, it's strictly writer, you know, everything is scripted and handed in at a meeting kind of thing. But back in the day, Del Close would actually have them, you know, put it in the melting pot and spin it out and see what happens. And uh, I think that, you know, a lot of the quality was better because it was, it was so much more organic and uh, the characters dr drove it and the writers wrote off those characters as compared to the other way around. Um, but uh, yeah, Dell was the man and um, I was kind of floundering. I was in my senior year at Loyola Chicago and I didn't know what to do with myself. And uh, somebody said, Dell's back teaching classes. You got to show up to this thing. And uh, I went and uh, with my buddy, Dave Pasquese, who's kind of a improv legend in Chicago right now, still. And uh, we, we had a very good first class and Dell took me aside afterwards and said, well, Joel, you know, I, uh, your brothers have been very good to me over the years and I, uh, I feel somewhat indebted. So I'm going to give you a scholarship to study here at the Improv Olympic. But, you know, I like that Pasquese quite a bit. Tell you what, I'll give you both a half scholarship. And I'm like, wait a minute, I had a full scholarship a second ago. <laughs> oh, okay, all right. So we got to go. To you, you remind David every day about it, right? Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So I don't think it was a lot of money when we look back at it, but uh, at the time it was. Uh, hey, where am I going to come up with forty dollars? Anyway. <laughs> So let me ask you a question. I'm sorry, Len. Um, oh, but but think about this whole improv deal. So, you know, your brothers were in the business. Other people probably knew people in the business and were kind of attracted to it, uh, to your knowledge. Uh, does anybody show up over there at Second City kind of unheard of, unknown, maybe not even sure they want to even do it, but say, I want to take a class or two. And then ultimately it turns out to be really good and, and, does great things. Are you familiar with anybody who's taken that path? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There's, there's guys that came to town thinking in the back of their head that this is what I want to do. And they went and saw a show. I, like I, I have a couple people I can think of Mitch Rouse and uh, Ian Gomez, uh, a couple people that end up being in the second city and I could think about myself coming out after a show and walking out and there's a guy in the shadows kind of, Hey, Hey, can I, can I talk to you for a minute? And, uh, next thing you know, the guy's saying, you know, could I maybe buy you a beer across the street, pick your brain for a second? Well, you want to know how to get my job, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, but, uh, there, there was, I could think of four or five people that came up to me that, you know, I just got to town and Farley being one of them, Chris Farley and Pat Finn, my good friend, uh, they came up to me after a show and I knew Finn, I knew Finn's older brother I went to school with, but uh, I think I had six beers with those guys, but um, sat and, you know, they picked my brain. What should we do? We want to, we want your job basically. And I said, well, at that point, you'll find Del Close, take classes with him. If you can also tell Joyce Sloan, you want to, you know, do whatever, paint the bathroom uh, and get classes at second city as well on the cheap. And, uh, Pretty much all of them followed my advice and, and got my job after I was gone. That's not unlike in baseball when a when a veteran you know player will take a young player under his wing, knowing full well that the kid's gunning for his job. Right, no doubt. So I I used to say I, I don't teach because I don't you know I don't want them to come take my job, but uh, I have taught. Uh, I just I taught at UCLA last year out here. That was kind of fun. 
because I thought they were so much younger than me. I didn't have to worry about them taking my job anymore. <laughs> anyway. You actually remind me of Bob uh, in your career path in that you're one of the funniest people I've, I've met. And, and yet maybe my favorite roles uh, have been pretty serious and dramatic roles. Uh, the Freddie Rumson uh, character from Mad Men uh, had so much depth. Uh, I'm curious about that transition between the, you know, the comedy and the improv and then, you know, playing some characters that, that weren't always very funny. Yeah. I, uh, I've been fortunate. And, you know, even when I was back in Chicago, I, I left and did bleacher bums. I left and did the frog prince. I, I left a couple of times and did plays, uh, on hiatus from second city, I would write a show and then leave and then put up a, you know, do a real stage show. But I've always tried to do both. I've always been a huge fan of comedic actors. I think like Robin Williams, some of his serious stuff is really solid and really deep. And my brother, Billy, like in loss and translations, I, I think he's fantastic in that. I think comedic actors can definitely do the straight stuff. It, it doesn't necessarily work the other way. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I always tried to dabble in them both. And so when I got the audition for Mad Men, I had already seen like the first two episodes and absolutely loved the show. And I, I just thought it was the coolest possible thing that I could be on that show. And, uh, so I, you know, I did my homework and, uh, I had this stuff memorized and which doesn't always happen in LA. Sometimes you, you come in, you've got the lines memorized. They're like, are you from Chicago? Yeah. Why do you say that? Because you memorize the lines. Like, oh, other people don't? No. Anyway, um, so I uh, I had the audition, and uh, Matt Weiner stood up, and he's, you know, a small man. He's he's only about 5'4", 5'5", I think, and uh, stands up, and he goes, yeah, yeah, you've got this this sadness about you. You, know, you did the, the funny, but you've got this sadness about you. And I'm, I'm like, eh, I don't know. You know, I, I got a great wife. I, my, my kids are really nice. I, and I could see the casting agent behind me slowly, like, shaking her head. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I'm sad. I Sadness in spades. Oh, yeah. My father died. Oh, I'm, I'm just sad, sad all the time. You're so right. Uh, so I, I switched gears in the midway through that. But uh, that, was, that was one of the best gigs ever, working on that show. Uh, it was really fun. And when you got done with work, you hung around for like six hours, which is not common in Hollywood. Usually you get done and you leave. But, you know, there you'd, you'd hang out. They had an outdoor patio kind of thing that was between all the trailers. And, uh, you know, you'd get done and you'd have a bottle of wine. And the next thing you know, they're like, hey, you want to play a quick game of Risk? Like Risk, the three-hour board game? Yeah, we're going to get one together right now. Okay. And uh, – It'd be dark and you're outside, you know, smoking and playing risk. It was, it was crazy. Those people love being around each other and, uh, and they were really a lot of fun. So, and, you know, I was kind of a dramatic role on shameless. The first season I had a, a goofy character and, uh, that was a, that was another weird one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, yeah. You're, you're right about the Midwest work ethic. You know, I think for whatever reason, we study here in the Midwest. On the coast, they just wing it. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of a lot of cold, rainy days to work on your scales in your room, right. you know, as compared to out here. You know, maybe I'll just go play frisbee golf or something. <laughs> 
<laughs> By the way, I agree with you on uh, on Bill Lost in Translation. That that was a pretty uh, amazing performance. Um, you were in The Artist. You had a small role. Uh, you played the police officer. And um, I want to know how much about that film you knew. And and you probably didn't have to do much, if any, prep to 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 do those that one scene basically. And lo and behold, that film ended up winning about seventy five awards. It won Best Picture, uh, yep. two thousand twelve, I think it was. Uh, that was a weird one, you know, uh, in a weekend where everything was three D this and three D that. And uh, my agent calls and says, "Yeah, I got an audition for you on Friday at five o'clock." I'm like, "What?" Where is that? In Hollywood. What? I, nobody wants to go to Hollywood at five o'clock on Friday. Well, what's it for? Well, it's a, um, it's a French black and white silent film. Like, are you kidding me? Really? Uh, and there's no way I would have gone to the audition if I didn't have a Vespa scooter. I have an Italian scooter I had when I lived in Chicago too. But uh, like, all right, I gotta take the scooter, I zigzag through the traffic which would be just a standstill at that point. And I got there and uh, some guys I knew were auditioning, big, a lot of heavy guys auditioning for the cop. And uh, I, uh, you go in and it's a French guy and he's got a glass of wine running the audition. Okay, uh, fabulous. You look great. Um, now, say you're walking down the street and you smell something behind you. What would that look like? Oh. Oh, I like the way you do that. Ah, yes. Oh, okay, now um, there's a dog. There's a dog barking. If he catches your attention, now now he's grabbing your pant leg. Oh, yes. And he would talk you through this stuff. And uh, like, this is surreal. <laughs> really? Do you want me to be a tree now? What? what oh, come on. And uh, I got the part, and um, you got on the set, and there was no sound. So it wasn't like working on a movie. So these guys are literally drinking wine, uh, Michael Hezevanekis, it's a hell of a handful of a name to say, but uh, they're, they're drinking wine, they're watching the, the show, they're playing Edith Piaf or something like that, they're playing loud French ma- music during the takes going, I think this is a good vibe for this scene. And um, you, you would do it, and it was pretty weird, but the thing with me was after the dog comes up and gets me, I have to chase the dog. And basically I did hundred yard wind sprints for about two hours. And then I did 50 yard wind sprints and they just kept filming me with different size lenses, chasing this dog over and over again in a wool police suit in Los Angeles with wafer thin sold uh, police boots from, you know, like 1920. And uh, I was thinking about the other guys at the audition, like they would have died. These guys, these guys would have had heart attacks. They would have died. But, you know, fortunately, I was playing basketball a lot at that point. Uh, it was it was cruel and unusual. Uh, but so, uh, I run very so, fast in the movie. When, when they kept uh, doing the, the shot of you running, uh, was there a critique each time? Like, no, you need to do it this way. We need to see. Or, or, I mean, what were they looking for? Why the repetitive nature of that? Uh, the camera might have bobbled that time. Um, I think it might be. I just let's just go one more, and that went on for hours. Our and fault, not yours. Just go run again. Yeah, technical problem, glitch. Uh, we're going to get a diff- slightly different angle, slightly different angle. Um, you know, get a water, get, and you know, you go back and sit in the shade, and uh, and they had four dogs, 
just one Joel, four dogs. <laughs> you see the one dog like going off to his trailer, uh, Uggy, and uh, Joel be just sweating through a, a wool outfit anyway. And then I got to pull John, uh, John Desjardins out of a fire, and I was expecting a little French guy. No, he's like a 210-pound 6'1 French guy, you know, much like myself. He, was, he wasn't LeBeau from Hogan's Heroes. He was a big guy. And so I had to go into a room that actually was on fire with flaming uh, film stock on the floor, uh, toxic as could be, and drag this guy out over and over again. That was that was fun as well. But anyway, I got to see it at the Toronto International Film Festival in a 2,000-seat theater on an enormous square picture a frame like it was supposed to be shot in a in like a hundred year old theater the way it should have been seen so i saw it in the perfect spot when i first saw it and uh you could hear people breathing and every gasp and uh it was so well received uh it was really really cool to see it that way when i first saw the movie i just remember sitting in the theater with my wife and uh I went, Joel, Joel's in this. I was so happy because I, I absolutely loved that movie. And uh, that's a great story about Chase of the Dog. Uh, I uh, actually, JD, this will be the only time I ever say this on this podcast. Joel and I were on the same series together. And I say it in air quotes. No way. We're, yes. Joel was in uh, the terrific Tim Baltz a series called Shrink. Right. And uh, I played myself. Uh, and in fact, I think we shot my scenes during the 2016 postseason. Yeah. It might have been, yeah, between the division series and the uh, uh, championship series. But uh, make sure you check it out on Peacock. Uh, Shrink, it's uh, a terrific series. So, Joel, you know, I, I can say I acted with you in a series. Yeah. Yeah, you you were in a scene with Kevin Dorff, a good friend of ours. Yes. yes. As well. Baltz and I uh, just did a thing the other day, and it was a, a shrink reunion in a way. It was uh, it was me and Baltz and uh, Kyle uh, Moore, who was the the goofy son. Uh, but we did a thing with a guy who who does kind of best ofs. But we did a, a, a mock draft of Cubs of all time, uh, and we we picked our twenty four favorite Cubs out of the the, the history, uh, which is kind of was kind of fun. It was a little bit of baseball, which was needed. And was it, we, uh, was it the best Cubs or just your favorite, for whatever reason, Cubs? Well, you there was, to get the all-time greatest Cub team. It was, you were trying to get the greatest team, but I, I didn't always play by the rules. I kind of wanted, you know, I, I picked Mark Grace pretty high because he's just somebody I'd like to have a beer with. Uh, you know, you want to have somebody on your team that's fun too, you know, uh, we didn't weren't picking any pitchers, so yeah. you weren't. Hack Wilson, would have been, Hack Wilson would have been fun. He was on my team. Uh, I, I was going to say I had the list somewhere, but not right here. Uh, but you know, and there was there was uh, Rogers Hornsby. There was guys that, like you don't know Rogers Hornsby. Stop, you know, you never saw him play. Your father didn't see him play. Give me a break. Uh, but there were people you could tell did a lot of research and uh, stacked their team with the. Well, so after they started that, I got Cap Anson, which wasn't even a, a Cub. That was a, a white stocking. But, uh, yeah, it, it got weird, but uh, it was fun nonetheless. Well, we hope uh, we're back at it here within the next month or so. I think this, uh, when this airs later this week, hopefully there will be some good news 
along the way. And uh, I would imagine if you can, you will try to get back to Chicago at some point this summer. But some of that may be out of your hands, right? Well, you know, uh, I'm going to have I'm either going to have a lot of time on my hands or uh, when we do get back to doing the Who's Line shows, we're going to be booked solid because uh, we keep just moving things back. Um, but, you know, 2016, I think I saw him in six different cities. So uh, that's a fun way to go too, uh, just to find your Cubs wherever they are. Absolutely. But, funniest, uh, funniest person you've ever met, Joel. I mean, you mentioned Chris Farley, but, you know, is there, is there just one person hands down, whether it's someone famous or not? Uh, well, my, my mother was pretty humorous, whether she knew it or not. Um, Farley would definitely be up there. Uh, but yeah, my, my brother Bill can t- bring a room from zero to 800 pretty quickly. Uh, he's a funny human being. Um, try, yeah. Where do you stand on the Three Stooges? I'm a man. Uh, uh, I, you know, I understand the, the subtleties that is Shemp, uh, unlike some people that don't get, like Shemp. Uh, I liked them all. I wasn't a Curly Joe fan. Uh, I, you know, I thought Mo was rough, but, but fair. Larry was uh, fine. Larry was fine, literally. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I, I like the Stooges. Uh, I don't think girls like the Stooges. Right. Yeah. I think. I wanted to get I wanted to get the opinion from you know somebody that's kind of inside the the industry. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I just saw the Laurel and Hardy uh, film. Uh, it was a Steve Coogan and John Riley, John uh, C. Riley. Riley, yeah. Uh, they were both great, but I didn't know the Laurel and Hardy story, uh, and it's really amazing. It it really is, and th- a lot of uh, we went back and watched some of the old sketches from, you know, 80 years ago. And they're really, really funny. And a lot of them were silent, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I believe as Stan Laurel lived in my neighborhood here. I live in Cheviot Hills on the west side of Los Angeles. Uh, and he was a neighbor back in the day. I wasn't here. But, uh, yeah, they, it's quite a story. And Riley, I, I could see how he'd be funny at that. Yeah, really, uh, I would... I think it's called Stan and Ollie. If uh, you get bored and want to check it out, um, JD, do you have anything else before a final question? I, I do. The only thing I just want to circle way back to the uh, Loyola Academy uh, days uh, and the football career, the, the the athletics, the captain of the football team. What what position did you play? I was uh, I was a fullback and a corner. Uh, I started my both both ways in junior year, and then my senior year we got a new coach. And uh, he didn't like guys playing both ways. And he was not a fan of mine because I, I might have hung out with some nefarious people, theater types, you know. And uh, but, I, I you know, I, I love football. I don't I tried to walk on at northern Illinois and uh, I went to one workout and uh, I picked up a flyer and I got cast in bus stop instead. Uh, I, I gave it up after one workout. I figured Everybody was faster and quicker than I was, and uh, enough. I'd had enough head head ah, see head injury at that point. <laughs> now, how about that? how about baseball? How much baseball did you play as a kid? I played a lot. I uh, I was in a league, which was the best little league. We got to play at Romer Park in Wilmette, 
So I played at Romer every game of my little league career. And some people brag that they got to play there once or twice a year. I played every game. Uh, but I was a 10-year-old, you know, hitting off guys or not hitting off guys that had mustaches at 12 and stuff. Uh, so I, I was pretty good. And I went to try out uh, freshman year. And I don't want to get religion or politics into this, but uh, there were some guys and uh, Eric Bowling was one of them, you know, the Fox analyst. And uh, so there were, there was some guys on the team that I didn't quite mesh with. And it was a two day tryout. And I tried out the first day I did really well. And the second day I'm l- lacing up my cleats and I noticed there's like 15 girls on the far end of the parking lot, about 300 yards away. I'm like, what are those, what are those chicks doing over there? And somebody says, Oh, uh, they're trying out for the spring musical. And I looked at Bowling and a couple of the other guys. I go, I'll see you assholes later. And that was, it. that was the end of my baseball career. Oh, that's great. Off of the so, I, I need a ruling here, JD, um, because I, I know golf a little bit. I'm not totally in on all the etiquette. Is it okay to just simply ask a guy what his handicap is? It's sure. Cool. And then it, okay, it, Joel. So, what's your current handicap? I know you've been playing a lot. I'm gonna look it up. I'm I'm, I'm an eight, eight point wow. four index. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm trending towards an eight. Yeah, eight solid. But uh, I'm working on it now. Um, it's a fascinating game. One thing goes, and then the other breaks and you know I, I drove well one day it couldn't putt putted well couldn't chip so it's it's a it's an evil mistress but every once in a while you get them all together and uh, I, I dream of those days well that, that bond is probably as strong as the comedy bond with your brothers right everybody golfs well yeah we get together for that and you know we have a, a murray brothers tournament down in st augustine florida every year and i have a little tournament at canal shores in evanston every year and uh you know, that, that is why we get together. Sometimes we do get together for the golf and then the clothing line, we, we have planned things where we get together to talk about designs and stuff like that. And it revolves, revolves around golf as well. So, uh, it's weird, you know, coming full circle. We, we started out all as caddies and uh, now, uh, <laughs> now we get back to go- golf and, uh, we like to over tip caddies when we get them. All right. Final question. We try to have a little fun with this and, uh, the idea here, Joel, is that you tell us an opinion or preference or thought that you feel pretty strongly about that you would assume most people would disagree with. So last week I admitted that I don't like peanut butter. Okay. So it doesn't have to be something you don't like. Maybe it's a, a show or a band you like that's not very popular. Uh, any thoughts on an unpopular take Joel Murray possesses? Oh, uh, I, uh, just struck by this question. Um, I can't handle humidity anymore. I, I I don't need to be any place where the humidity is over 85%. I don't need to be in Florida in, in August. I, you know, those couple of days of July in Chicago, even uh, when I Jamaica at the wrong time of year, I don't need to be any place where when you put on your shirt, it's immediately wet and your hair never dries. Uh, I, I I don't know I I've done well enough in my career that I don't have to live in humidity and um, I I think my skin is better for it. I think that's a really good take and I'm JD I'm not sure how unpopular it is although you know some people like it as hot as possible and don't care if it's humid but I'm with Joel man give me 65 and no humidity I'm yeah good. Well, he's got it right out there in 
Southern California, right? That's, right. that's the sweet spot. We don't even have bugs out here. There's no water for them to live. So it's, it's, it's pretty good. Well, thank thank you so much for your time. Uh, we really appreciate all your efforts with Hot Stove Cool Music and Theo's Foundation to be named later. And well, did uh, you, you hear and I've gotten to know each other well, and uh, it's been such a great thing every year. Did you hear they're going to do a virtual thing June 18th, a virtual uh, Hot Stove thing? Michael Malley's going to host and he's going to put together something. Yeah, it's uh, coming up here in about uh, three weeks or so, and uh, we'll have more information on the podcast coming up. And uh, it's live streaming, so kind of like SNL you mentioned earlier. Not everything will be performed technically live, but Joel, if it's a live stream, that's technically accurate, right? It's not new, but it's new for you. That's right. right? Filmed before a live studio audience. Yeah. None of them were dead at that point. <laughs> Joel, thanks so much. We appreciate it. We'll catch up soon, okay? All right, my pleasure. I hope to see you out at the ballpark. Thank you, Joel. All right. Be well. Go Cubs. Go. Great stuff from the great Joel Murray. And JD, uh, you can probably find the Chris Farley. Uh, documentary. I think it's like a two-hour documentary. Um, just go on your cable system and search for it. And uh, Joel talks uh, so much about Chris and how funny he was. And uh, I think Joel had an impact on Chris too. Um, there's just so many connections, man, right? The, the Odenkirk and Del Close and uh, the Chicago comedy circle is pretty tight. Yeah. The, the uh, you know One seems to link to the next, um, whether it's you know the same generation or a few years uh, later, but that, that's uh, interesting to, to hear from uh, Joel about his relationship with Farley and when they lived uh, side by side at the apartment over in Old Town. <laughs> his reference, he referred to him as like a big yellow lab, and uh, I mean, if it's perfect imagery, I mean, it's exactly what you think of when you when you think of Chris Farley. Well, here's some uh, Cubs and MLB news from the past week, and man, every week, unfortunately, we we talk about someone from the Cubs family who has passed away. Uh, last week, Bill Griffin uh, passed away, a longtime Wrigley Field vendor uh, from COVID-19. He was 88 years old. J.D., he began vending at Wrigley Field and at Comiskey Park in 1952 and was a vendor for 65 years. Can you imagine? Wow, that's, that's a heck of a run. It's a, it's a, a kind of a walking, breathing baseball history book uh, here in Chicago and uh, sad to to hear that news. Um, but, you know, that's the fun thing at, at Wrigley, and, you know, we're not going to be able to experience that in all likelihood this year, but all the vendors, all the ushers, all the people you come in contact with, um, most of them, it's just not a job. They have a passion for the game and being around the fans at the ballpark. No question about it. So our condolences to the family and friends of Bill Griffin. We hope to be making progress toward a 2020 season. At the time of this recording, uh, it is being reported that uh, the owners are going to make a financial presentation to the Players Association when this does air. Uh, hopefully that will have happened. It's just fair to say, J.D., that the, the next week or so is absolutely critical in getting a deal done if MLB wants to remain on the timeline that's been presented. 
That's right. And I, and I think if they fail to get it done, that doesn't mean that there won't be a season. It might start a little bit later and have to run a little bit longer, or they may end up playing uh, uh, fewer games. Uh, right now, the plan of the initial plan was to play 82. Seems like there's a lot of momentum heading in the right way, though, Len. With everything you read, the comments from both uh, the, the club side and the player side, uh, it seems like there's been some movement. So I, I'm very optimistic that they're going to be able to get something done here in the next uh, week or so. One quick question for you regarding, you know, some of the logistics of what this season will look like. My guess is we'll start a season and there just has to be something that we missed or MLB missed, and they're going to have to figure out on the fly. And you and I were on uh, the score over the weekend with Zach Zaidman and Ron Coomer, and I asked the question about how trades might work here in 2020. Do you think that's the sort of thing they might address just from a health and family standpoint? Because, you know, a guy could possibly in a given year get traded two or three times. Is it really fair in this environment uh, to ask him and possibly his entire family to pack up and move twice during the summer? Right. Uh, I, I'm sure that has been discussed or or will be, you know, in, in a deeper conversation. Um, and it may be that they say there aren't going to be any trades, uh, you know, off the major league roster. Um because, we, you know, initially we talked about the trade deadline and when that would be what that might look like. And then you raised the idea that maybe there wouldn't be any trades at all. And I can certainly understand uh, that being the case. Or if you trade a player and he reports to his new club, do you quarantine him for a week? I mean, I, I don't know. I think those are all, all, all conversations that need to be had. Yep, we'll, we'll watch for that. Thanks for listening. And a special thanks to Matt Romito, Daniel Green, Jim Oboykowicz, Max Berman, Joe Rios, and Adam Sobel. So for JD, I'm Len. Make sure you subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with all your friends. We'll talk to you next week.